said, uh, I need your help. She said, I've got a student that has shown up late for my class about three days in a row. I said, well, what have you done so far to correct the problem? And she said, well, I've talked to the student. I've tried to find out what's making him late, but he always comes up with a different excuse. And we had a procedure in place for teachers to assign detentions for tardies after first period. We had seven periods a day, and a detention meant after-school detention every day, 180 days a year, after-school detention. I said, well, how many detentions have you given him? She said, I've given him two, but I need your help. I said, all right. Before I had a chance to even address the problem, I had another teacher come to me, and she said, I have a student that's showing up late to my class, and I, I'm trying to correct the problem. Can you help me? And I said, who is the student? And she named the same student that the first teacher had mentioned. I said, well, you know, we've got a problem here. I need to look into this. And so I did what every principal would do. I went to my assistant principal. (laughs) We had a new camera system installed. And I said, I need you to start with first period. Go to that classroom and help me figure out where this guy is going and what he's doing. And so it took a little time, but we went through the camera system and followed him over the course of the day. And sure enough... Out of seven periods in a day for about four of the classes, he was just hanging out and talking to friends and in the hallway and then just showing up for late for class. So toward the end of the day, I called him to the office and he came in the office and I said, "Uh, put your book bag down over here. I need you to go somewhere with me. And in typical junior high fashion, he said, where are we going? (laughs) I said, we're going to the library. Okay. So we walk out of the office and I turn left and he corrects me and he said, no, the library is this way. I said, I know exactly where the library is, but we need to go this way first. And so we walk out, out of the building actually, outside under a breezeway, back in the building. And we come down the hallway just a little ways to a vending machine. It was where students could buy juice and water and healthy drinks like that. And, and so... Uh, We stopped there, and I just sort of looked at the vending machine, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we talked about the options that were in the vending machine and the different flavors that were represented there and the cost. And and he looked at me like I was an idiot, like 930 other junior high students had looked at me that year. And, and, And he wanted to know, why are we doing this? And I said, well, I'm just trying to figure out why you stood here for about eight minutes between second and third period. I said, but we've gone over every option that is in this vending machine. You know exactly how much each drink costs, so the next time you come this way, there should be no reason for you to stand here that long. Correct? Yes, sir. We walk down the hallway about mm, about 40 more yards, and we get to one of the first entrance into the gymnasium. And so we stand there and just kind of look in. I open the door and kids are in there. PE class is going on. So they're playing a little volleyball. They're playing a little basketball. You know, kids are walking around. And so I have him tell me every activity. Exasperated. And I said, uh, is that everything that's going on in there? He said, yes, sir. I said, so you know what's going on in the gym. There will be no need for you to spend as long a time as you spent between fourth and fifth period looking into the gym. Correct? Yes, sir. 
we go on down, we stop at the cafeteria, and we look in, and I'm looking in the cafeteria, and he's looking in. So we talk about all that's going in the cafeteria. Then we go to the boys' restroom. I didn't go in the boys' restroom. We just stood in the hallway. And I pointed to that restroom. I said, you ever been in there? Yes, sir. I said, tell me what's in that restroom, sir. I said, tell me. So he told me every fixture, how many they were, what color they were, how many stalls, how many sinks, how many waste cans, the color of the tile, the color of the lights, how many lights. He told me everything that he could remember about that. Finally, he said, uh, Dr. Harden, is there a point to all this? I said, absolutely there is, and I'm glad you asked. And so I addressed the issue with him being late for his classes, and I reminded him that we had cameras in the building, and I could follow his every footstep throughout the day. And from that point forward, I did not expect him to be late for a class unless he was providentially hindered. Of course, he didn't know what providential was, so I had to explain that to him too. But he got the point. Now, I say all of that to say that it would have been very easy for me to simply call that student to the office and seated behind my desk, talk to him about why he was late for his classes. I'd done that many times before. But on that occasion, I thought, you know, I know where he's been. I know where he's hanging out. I know what he's looking at. I know who he's talking to. I know, And so I wanted him to know that I knew and that I could continue following him and address that situation down the road if I needed to. And so we simply had a meaningful stroll through the building to talk about why he was not doing what he should be doing. Now, for anybody that I've lost this morning by that illustration, let me just tell you, there is a very, very academic analogy to this. And it's based on the teachings of Euclid from the 4th century. Are you interested? <laughs> I didn't think so. You see, in the 17th century, there was a guy by the name of Bernard Ryman who built mathematical equations based on the teachings of Euclid, who is the father of modern-day geometry, by the way. Some of you took geometry when you were in high school. So you know what this is all about. Einstein picked up on it and talked about the theory of relativity. Now, if I didn't lose you with Euclid, I know I lost you with Albert Einstein. Einstein's theory of relativity is this idea that the shortest point between A and B is not always a straight line. You get it? That is exactly what our scripture is about today. Some of you will leave saying, I had no idea that Euclid and Einstein made it in Exodus chapter 13. But they're there. You have to read through the verses a little bit, but their names are found what is this about? We're studying through the life of Moses. If you were here last Sunday, you know that we looked at the Passover plague. It was the 10th and final plague that ultimately led Pharaoh to say to Moses, get your people and get out. It had been the point all along that Moses and Aaron had said to Pharaoh, God wants them freed. God wants them to let go. We need them to pack up. We're, we're going to leave and go to a, another land. You will never see us again. But Pharaoh just kept digging his heels in the sand. 
He kept hardening his heart. His ways were calloused and his will was strong. And he said, no, I want them to stay here. I need them as slaves. I need them as workers. I'm going to keep them here for as long as I possibly can. But when the firstborn of all those homes that were not covered and protected with the blood of the Lamb, Pharaoh said, get your people and get out. I have three points for you this morning. Very simple points. The first point I want you to see is their departure. The second point we're going to see in just a moment is their dilemma. And the third and final point, their deliverance. Their departure begins in verse 17 here in chapter 13 where it says that finally Pharaoh says, I will let the people go. Get out. We know that a lot has come about up to that point. It took him a long time, finally, for him to say, I will let God have his way, and you can do what you have asked for all this time. Get the people and get out. I'm going to make a point that some of you will think is really unnecessary, but I think it needs to be restated. Unless you come under the blood... You're never free. That was the only way that those Hebrews would ever leave Egypt. Is if they had followed in obedience Moses' commands that God had given him, Moses gave to the people, to take the lamb, to kill it, and with some of the blood to cover it on their doorpost. The blood. The blood. Malcolm Muggeridge was a journalist from another generation and this is what he said he said if the church does not stop preaching the blood get this now intelligent people will not want to become Christians anymore Malcolm Muggeridge said that but you and I know that the opposite of that is true in churches that have stopped preaching the blood of Christ today they worship in a closet. They're virtually non-existent. They have no influence and no impact whatsoever in the communities where they exist. On the other hand, those churches where the pastors have been faithful to preach that common thread through the Bible of the blood, the blood, the blood, in the blood there is life-giving power, there is life-giving strength, we are mindful that Jesus on the cross shed His blood. And it is a picture of it here as the Hebrews follow in obedience by faith, sprinkling the blood on their doorpost and on the lintel. And when the death angel came through, they did not lose their firstborn. And they were freed when Pharaoh said, get up and get out. You and I too will come to a day For we need to understand that freedom only comes through Christ and one day that freedom will become a reality. I didn't come here today to be a David Downer. Usually we say Debbie Downer, but I thought I'd give the females a break there. I didn't come to be a David Downer. Let me just tell you, Alexander the Great had something really to impact his life. You know what he did? He hired a member of his cabinet 
to come into his quarters every single day and say to him, King, one day you will die. That's all he said. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't need to be reminded every single day that one day I'm going to die. Do you? There's so much I want to experience. There's so much I want to live. It just takes away from a little bit of the joy. But the reality of it is we know it's true. Follow me. Only when you are prepared to die are you ready to live. And the departure here is the idea that these Hebrews said, I get it, God has a plan for us. I'm going to follow His plan. I'm going to sprinkle the blood. And by faith they believed that they would be protected. Only when you and I are willing to let the blood of Jesus Christ cover our sins... Can we live with that kind of protection and that kind of security and that kind of contentment? So the departure is important. But now I'm going to show you their dilemma. Look at what happens here. It says in verse 20, Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day, by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back, get this now, and camp before Pehiroth. You have to go to seminary to learn how to pronounce that word, but I'm just kidding. Pehiroth, between Migdal and the sea, Look at this. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon opposite it by the sea. Now, in, in order for these verses to mean anything to you, sometimes you have to use a map. And in the back of your Bible, some of you have a map that shows you ancient Egypt and Canaan, the promised land. And I encourage you this afternoon to find that map and look at what I'm showing you. When the Hebrews leave Egypt, and by the way, about two million of them, that's probably a conservative estimate. Some say in excess of eight million. I don't know, you know how the count comes about, but I'm telling you it was a bunch of them. We're not talking about a small crowd. We're talking about a huge number of people that Moses is responsible for as he leads them to Egypt, uh, to the promised land. Moses knows where they're going. He knows the general direction of the promised land. And as by the crow flies, it was really only about 140, 150 miles. But what you see recorded here in Scripture is telling us their direct travels. And the way they went is they left eastward of Egypt, then went south. And from south, they went in a general north-northwest direction until they were camped at Baal-Zephon opposite the Red Sea. So they traveled for several days, but as they're moving in a general direction of the promised land, at one point as they're following the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, remember they're, they're in a hurry, they're traveling, they're traveling, and they're getting as far away from Egypt as they can, all of a sudden the cloud and the pillar of fire takes them in a different direction. Now they're moving not toward the promised land 
where we know Israel exists, but they're moving south, away from it. And when they turn and move north, they're not moving north, northeast, back toward the promised land. They're moving north, northwest. Actually, it's back closer to Egypt. And where they find themselves now is they are in a cul-de-sac. Watch this. A marshy land on the left, mountains to the right, and the Red Sea in front of them. That's a problem. Because what you read here next is that Pharaoh hears where they are. He changes his mind. He pulls together his army and he says, go get them and bring them back. I'm not willing to let them be freed. I want them to come back and occupy the land of Goshen yet again. What's God doing here? He's taking them on the scenic tour, isn't he? He's, he's taking them a totally longer path to get where they need to. Now, for those of you who know the story, you know it takes them 40 years, right? To eventually and ultimately get to the promised land. And the majority of these people will never see the promised land because they die in the wilderness due to a lack of faith. But here they are at this moment where they begin to see what God is doing as He is leading them a different way. We started with verse 17 that said, God led them not by the way of the Philistines, even though it was near, He led them through the wilderness further, deeper in a direction, away from their ultimate destination. God has a way of doing that with you and me. He, he takes us a different path. Even though we kind of know where we're headed, He takes us in a different direction. And there's a, we're wondering, well, why is He doing this? Instead of us asking why, we need to ask what? God, what is it that you want me to see here? What is it that you want me to learn? What is it about my life that you're trying to teach me? Sometimes it's a discipline. Sometimes it's, it's a different view. It's a different experience. Sometimes God, God is just trying to expose us to different things of faith that really matter. And that's exactly what he's doing here by the Red Sea. Did you hear where it said that they camped? Baal Zephon. Do you know what Baal Zephon means? It means God of buried treasure. That's literally what it means in the Hebrew. And do you want to know what many historians believe was happening here? Is that God let them camp in this cul-de-sac with the marshy land to the left, mountains to the right, Red Sea in front of them, and the devil behind them, that'd be Pharaoh and the army. And so they're camped out here, and God is saying, I need you to get rid every trinket, every god, every goddess, every idol that you brought with you to Egypt, bury it in the sand and leave it there and forget about it because they really do not exist. God is stripping them of every resource that they have. Get this now so that they will learn to totally lean and trust Him. I know you've heard it said before. It was easy to get them out of Egypt. It was a lot more difficult to get Egypt out of them. God does that for you and me.
He takes us in directions and He takes us to places where He has to teach us, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you? Every, every trial in the Bible, I challenge you on this, find a place in the Bible where somebody was not tested and the question was the Lord asking, will you trust me? I love the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Remember? And, and he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Well, pfft, that's impossible. We don't have anything. And Andrew, John chapter 6, says, well, we've got a lad here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But it all goes on to say that Jesus asked them the question and told them to feed them. Get this now. Because he wanted to test them. What was he testing? Their faith. Would they trust him? Baal Zephon. God is saying, bury those things that you're trusting right now to get you through and understand that they have no power whatsoever and I want you to only trust me. Look at verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, this is in chapter 14, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You know what I've also discovered, and I say this lovingly, church. It is human nature for us to always want to blame the leadership when things go wrong. When sometimes the leadership is taking us in the right direction, we're just not patient enough to pass the test before we take the next step. Just a thought. Look at their deliverance. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. What? We're about to die? You're telling us don't be afraid? Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Well, I love that. That's their deliverance. You know the story. You know the story of how Pharaoh and his army come after them and how God tells Moses what to do. What did he do? He takes that staff that's in his hand. The one that he'd thrown down at the burning bush and turned into a serpent. Now he took it back up and it become a rod, became a rod again. That same rod, that staff, he holds out over the water and all night long the waters begin to blow. And as it blows and blows, it builds a wall there and they walk through on dry ground. Now the antagonists, the skeptics, the unbelievers... They say, oh, this wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. And they go back and they want to jump through all kind of gymnastics to talk about how the naming of this body of water had changed over the years and how it had developed a deeper basin that we know of today. But back in Moses' day, it was very shallow, it was shallow. You know, right? Moses and his men and their horses and chariots run after Moses and the people and the water comes in and they drown and they die, right? So our antagonists are really telling us if this was two to six inches of water as they say it was, was a bigger miracle than we believe in. 
Number one, do not be afraid. Fear is a God-given emotion. Fear can be healthy. I want my grandson to fear a busy street. I want my grandson to fear what will happen if he sticks his finger in an outlet. I want him to fear some things, but not, not fear to the point that is detrimental to him. I want him to have fear so that it will protect him and help him. The same is true of God. We fear him. But our fear is a healthy fear that is translated more into a respect and a reverence for him. We, we, we do not strip him of his honor and his power by simply just rushing into his presence and demanding an audience with him. We believe that we are there because we are graced with his presence only through the blood of Christ, right? Fear. But if fear unrestrained it can fight against faith and fear can make us shrink away from moving forward and doing what God wants us to do so that's why Moses is saying the first thing you need to do is you need to not fear the second thing that he does is he says stand up they probably just sat down they probably stand up get ready what what I, I like this picture it is the idea that they are at a red light now, if you're traveling in your car and you come through traffic and you come to a red light, do you put your vehicle in park and turn the engine off and take a nap? I hope not. What are you doing? Your foot's on the brake, but it's in gear. You're waiting for the light to turn green. That's what they should have been doing. You're trying to find God's will for your life? Well, get ready. If you're just sitting there doing nothing... I'm not sure you're making the best use of your time, nor do I believe that you're exercising a lot of faith. Getting ready for God to show you His will is you're waiting on the light to turn green. And then look at what He says. He says, and God will fight for you. Keep silent. Now that's a problem for Baptists, isn't it? You know, I heard this the other day and it's so true. I, I've heard of a lot of competitions where we give students awards for being the best speaker. Why don't we give an award for somebody being the best listener? Because the same letters of the alphabet that spell silent also spell listen. If you're talking to God, more than you're listening to God. Maybe you're dominating the conversation. And who's the more important person there? You know, Quakers had an interesting thing that they would do when they would come to church. You know what they would do? They would come in silently. And they would sit there without saying a word until one of the elders would stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord. Now, I'm not recommending that for us because it never worked. But it's humor, folks. It's just humor. You know, there's some merit to that. The idea that when we come to church that our hearts, our antennas, our minds are attuned to saying, Lord, what is it that you want to say to me today? What is it 
that I need to hear. Where is your promised land? For some of us, it's financial freedom. We, we want to be debt-free. For some others, it's, it's a career. It's, it's, it's another degree. For, for some, it may be a relationship to get married, to start a family. That, that's, that's, your, that's on the horizon for you. That, that's your promised land. I, I just want to remind you, God may be leading you there, but He may be leading you in a different direction. For a church, it may be finding your pastor. And as we pray for your pastor search committee, we're praying, God, take them to the man that you would name as the next pastor of North Winona Baptist Church. But on their journey, let's understand that he may take them a different path. Does God know where that pastor is and who that... Absolutely. Did God know where the promised land was? Absolutely. But he chose not to take them directly there. He chose to let them take a journey with a purpose so that on that journey God could teach them some things that they really needed to know and above and beyond anything that he taught them you know what he's teaching them who he is what his heart is what his desires really are for them as a nation and the same is true for you and me God wants us above and beyond everything else to know Him and trust Him and love Him. Will you do that? Stand with me this morning. Father, I, I know that all of us, or any one of us, in our own way want to get to the destination. We, we, we want to arrive at our promised lands. We, we want to embrace and possess all that you promised for us. But sometimes you teach us along the way of how important it is to trust you and to trust your timing. As you taught the ancient Israelites that lesson, I pray that you would teach us that lesson. And Lord, rather than us being more focused on the end result and the destination, let us focus on you and appreciate the time spent with you and the opportunity to learn along the way because your way works. If there are mountains in front of us, Lord, I pray you'd remove the mountains, valleys, lead us through the valleys. Whatever looks as to be an obstacle and a hindrance, Lord, show us the way through. Teach us, help us. Increase our capacity to have the faith that is needed to demonstrate to the world that we are solidly and faithfully yours. 
Father, if there's any person here today yet without you through Jesus, I pray that you'd give them the courage to come forward and say, yes, I trust Christ as my Savior. And I want to follow him in baptism and church membership. If there are Christians here looking for a church home, because your spirit would lead them, let them come to unite with our church family. and Use what gifts and abilities they have so that your church may be strengthened. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.